Part five of the Chronicles of Crime, Volume One, by Camden Pelham. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Part five. The Marquis de Pagliotti, executed for the murder of his servant. This nobleman was at the head of a noble family in Italy, and was born at Bologna. In the reign of Queen Anne he was a colonel in the imperial army. The Duke of Shrewsbury, being at Rome, fell in love with and paid his addresses to the sister of the Marquis, and the lady having been married to him in Germany, they came to England. The Marquis, quitting the army at the Peace of Utrecht, visited England to see his sister, and being fond of an extravagant course of life, and attached to gaming, he soon ran in debt for considerable sums. His sister paid his debts for some time, till she found it would be a burdensome and endless task, and she therefore declined all further interference. The habits of the Marquis, however, were in no wise changed, and, being one day walking in the street, he directed his servant, an Italian, to go and borrow some money. The servant, having met with frequent denials, declined going, on which the Marquis drew his sword and killed him on the spot. He was instantly apprehended and committed to prison, and being tried at the next sessions, was convicted on full evidence and received the sentence of death. The Duke of Shrewsbury being dead, and his Duchess having little interest or acquaintance in England, it appears that no endeavours were used to save him from the punishment which awaited him, and he was executed at Tyburn on the 17th of March, 1718. Italian pride had taken deep root in the mind of this man. To his last moment it was predominant. He petitioned the sheriffs that his body should not be defiled by touching the unhappy Englishmen doomed to suffer with him, and that he might die before them and alone. The sheriffs, in courtesy to a stranger, granted this request, and thus, in his last struggle, he maintained the superiority of his rank. John Price, commonly called Jack Ketch, executed for murder. Although the circumstances attending the crime of this malefactor do not present any features of general interest, the fact of the offender having filled the office of public executioner, and of his being deprived of life on that very scaffold on which he had exercised the functions of his revolting office, render the case not a little remarkable. It would appear that the prisoner was born of decent parents, in the parish of St. Martin's in the Fields, London, and that his father, who was in the service of his country having been blown up at the demolition of Tangier, he was put apprentice to a rag merchant. His master dying, he ran away and went to sea, and served with credit on board different ships in the navy for the space of eighteen years, but at length was paid off and discharged from further service. The office of public executioner becoming vacant, it was given to him, and, but for his extravagance, he might have long continued in it, and subsisted on its dreadfully earned wages. On returning from an execution, however, he was arrested in Hoburn for debt, which he discharged, in part, with the wages he had that day earned, and the remainder with the produce of three suits of clothes, which he had taken from the bodies of the executed men. But soon afterwards he was lodged in the Marshalsea prison for other debts, and there he remained for want of bail, in consequence of which one William Marvel was appointed in his stead. He continued some time longer in the Marshalsea, when he and a fellow-prisoner broke a hole in the wall through which they made their escape. 
It was not long after this that Price committed the offence for which he was executed. He was indicted on the 20th of April, 1718, for the murder of Elizabeth, the wife of William White, on the 13th of the preceding month. In the course of the evidence it appeared that Price met the deceased near ten at night in Moorfields, and attempted to ravish her, but the poor woman, who was the wife of a watchman, and sold gingerbread in the streets, doing all in her power to resist his villainous attacks, he beat her so cruelly that streams of blood issued from her eyes and mouth, one of her arms was broken, some of her teeth were knocked out, her head was bruised in a most dreadful manner, and one of her eyes was forced from the socket. Some persons, hearing the cries of the unhappy creature, repaired to the spot, took Price into custody, and lodged him in the watch-house, and the woman, being attended by a surgeon and a nurse, was unable to speak, but she answered the nurse's questions by signs, and in that manner described what had happened to her. She died, after having languished four days. The prisoner, on his trial, denied that he was guilty of the murder, but he was found guilty and sentenced to death. He then gave himself up to the use of intoxicating liquors, and continued obstinately to deny his guilt until the day of execution. He then, however, admitted the justice of his punishment, but said that he was in a state of intoxication when he committed the crime for which he suffered. He was executed on the 21st of May, 1718, at Bunhill Row, and was afterwards hung in chains at Holloway. It may be remarked that this case affords a striking instance of the absence of the effect of example. For, however much the miserable calling of the unhappy man may have hardened his mind, and rendered him callous to those feelings of degradation which would arise in the heart of any ordinary person placed in a similar situation, it cannot be supposed that his fear of the dreadful punishment of death could have been in any degree abated by his having so frequently witnessed its execution in all its horrors. Barbara Spencer Strangled and then burned for coining This is the first case on record in which any person appears to have been executed for counterfeiting the coin of the realm. The punishment for this offence, at first, of necessity, severe, to check the alarming prevalence of the crime, has long since been materially mitigated, and although the evil still exists to a great degree, it has been diminished very considerably, in consequence of the judicious steps taken by the officers of the Mint. In the month of May, 1721, Barbara Spencer, with two other women named Alice Hall and Elizabeth Bray, were indicted for high treason in counterfeiting the king's current coin of the realm. The evidence went to prove the two latter prisoners to be agents only, and they were acquitted. While Spencer appeared to be the principal, and she was found guilty and sentenced to be burned. It turned out that the prisoner had before been guilty of similar offences, and the sentence was carried into execution, although not in its direct terms. The law which then existed was, indeed, that women convicted of high or petty treason should be burned, but the wisdom and humanity of the authorities provided a more easy death in directing that the malefactor should be strangled while tied to the stake, and that the body should afterwards be consumed by fire. While under sentence of death, the prisoner behaved in the most indecent and turbulent manner, nor could she be convinced that she had been guilty of any crime in making a few shillings. She was for some time very impatient under the idea of her approaching dissolution, and was particularly shocked at the thought of being burned, but at the place of execution she seemed willing to exercise herself in devotion, 
but was much interrupted by the mob throwing stones and dirt at her. She was strangled and burned at Tyburn on the 5th of July, 1721. William Spigot and Thomas Phillips, executed for highway robbery. This case is rendered worthy of notice by the fact that, the prisoners refusing to plead, they were placed under the torture. They were indicted for a robbery upon the King's Highway, but refused to plead until some of their property which had been taken from them was returned. This was denied them by the court, under the provisions of the statute of the 4th and 5th William and Mary, and as, in spite of all entreaties, they persisted in their refusal to deny or confess the charge against them, the court ordered that the judgment ordained by law should be read to them. This was, that the prisoner shall be sent to the prison from whence he came, and put into a mean room, stopped from the light, and shall there be laid on the bare ground, without any litter, straw, or other covering, and without any garment about him, except something to hide his privy members. He shall lie upon his back, his head shall be covered, and his feet shall be bare. One of his arms shall be drawn with a cord to one side of the room, and the other arm to the other side, and the legs shall be served in the like manner. Then there shall be laid upon his body as much iron or stone as he can bear, and more. And the first day after he shall have three morsels of barley-bread without any drink, and the second day he shall be allowed to drink as much as he can, at three times, of the water that is next the prison door, except running water, without any bread, and this shall be his diet till he dies. And he against whom this judgment shall be given forfeits his goods to the king. The reading of this sentence producing no effect, they were ordered back to Newgate, there to be pressed to death. But when they came into the press-room, Phillips begged to be taken back to plead. The favour was granted, though it might have been denied to him, but Spigot was put under the press, and he continued half an hour, with three hundred and fifty pounds weight on his body. But on the addition of fifty pounds more, he also begged to plead. They were in consequence brought back, and again arraigned, when, the evidence being clear and positive against them, they were convicted, and received sentence of death, in consequence of which they were executed at Tyburn on the 8th of February, 1721. The prisoner Phillips, after sentence, behaved in a manner which exhibited that he was a person of the most abandoned character. His companion was more attentive to his devotions, but Phillips declared that he did not fear to die, for he was sure of going to heaven. It appeared from the declarations of the prisoners that they had been very successful in their depredations, in the commission of which they were accompanied by a clergyman named Joseph Lindsay, and a lunatic, who had escaped from Bedlam, named Burroughs. The mad prattling of the latter caused the apprehension of his companions, while the evidence of the former tended materially to secure their conviction. It is almost needless to add that the remnant of barbarity, the torture, has long since been abolished. Nathaniel Hawes, tortured and afterwards executed for robbery. The case of this prisoner may not prove uninteresting, as connected with that last detailed. Nathaniel Hawes was a native of Norfolk, in which county he was born in the year 1701. His father was a grazier in good circumstances, but dying while the son was an infant, a relation in Hertfordshire took care of his education. At a proper age he was apprenticed to an upholsterer in London, but becoming connected with people of bad character, 
he robbed his master when he had served only two years of his time, for which he was tried at the Old Bailey, and being convicted, was sentenced to seven years' transportation. His sentence was, however, withdrawn on his becoming evidence against the receiver of the stolen property, but the warning which he had received was of no avail, and after having been once in custody for robbery, when he was again admitted King's evidence, he soon joined a fellow with whom he had become acquainted in prison, and meeting a gentleman on Finchley Common, they demanded his money, swearing to murder him if he did not give it to them. The gentleman quitted his horse, and at the same moment seized the pistol which was placed at his throat by the robber, and, presenting it to the latter, told him to expect death if he did not surrender himself. His companion, having fled, Hawes was now as terrified as he had been insolent, and made no opposition, and the driver of a cart coming up just at the moment, he was easily made a prisoner, conveyed to London, and committed to Newgate. When the sessions came on, and he was brought to the bar, he refused to plead to his indictment, alleging, as a reason for so doing, that he would die, as he had lived, like a gentleman. The people, said he, who apprehended me, seized a suit of fine clothes which I intended to have gone to the gallows in, and unless they are returned, I will not plead, for no one shall say that I was hanged in a dirty shirt and ragged coat. On this, sentence was pronounced that he should be pressed to death, whereupon he was taken from the court, and, being laid on his back, sustained a load of two hundred and fifty pounds weight about seven minutes. But, unable any longer to bear the pain, he entreated he might be conducted back to the court. He then pleaded not guilty, but the evidence against him being conclusive, he was convicted and sentenced to die. He was executed at Tyburn on the 22nd of December, 1721. The subject of torture may not be inaptly illustrated by an account given by Stedman of a scene witnessed by him at Surinam, when a young man, a free negro, was tortured for the murder of the overseer of the estate of Altona in the Para Creek. He says, This man, having stolen a sheep to entertain a favourite young woman, the overseer, who burned with jealousy, had determined to see him hanged to prevent which the negro shot him dead among the sugar-canes. For these offences, of course, he was sentenced to be broken alive upon the rack, without the benefit of the coup de grace, or mercy-stroke. Informed of the dreadful sentence, he composedly laid himself down upon his back, on a strong cross, on which, with his arms and legs extended, he was fastened by ropes. The executioner, also a black man, having now, with hatchet, chopped off his left hand, next took up a heavy iron bar, with which, by repeated blows, he broke his bones to shivers, till the marrow, blood, and splinters flew about the field. But the prisoner never uttered a groan nor a sigh. The ropes being next unlashed, I imagined him dead, and felt happy, till the magistrates, stirring to depart, he writhed himself from the cross, when he fell on the grass, and damned them all as a set of barbarous rascals. At the same time, removing his right hand by the help of his teeth, he rested his head on part of the timber, and asked the bystanders for a pipe of tobacco, which was infamously answered by kicking and spitting on him, till I, with some American seamen, thought proper to prevent it. He then begged his head might be chopped off, but to no purpose. At last, seeing no end to his misery, he declared that though he had deserved death, he had not expected to die so many deaths. However, said he, you Christians have missed your aim at last, 
and I now care not were I to remain thus one month longer. After which he sung two extempore songs with a clear voice, the subjects of which were to bid adieu to his living friends, and to acquaint his deceased relations that in a very little time he should be with them, to enjoy their company for ever in a better place. This done, he calmly entered into conversation with some gentlemen concerning his trial, relating every particular with uncommon tranquillity. But, he said abruptly, by the sun it must be eight o'clock, and by any longer discourse I should be sorry to be the cause of you losing your breakfast. Then, casting his eyes on a Jew, whose name was Deveries, "'Apropos, sir,' said he, "'won't you please to pay me the ten shillings you owe me?' "'For what to do?' "'To buy meat and drink, to be sure.' don't you perceive I'm to be kept alive? Which speech, on seeing the Jew stare like a fool, the mangled wretch accompanied with a loud and hearty laugh. Next, observing the soldier that stood sentinel over him, biting occasionally on a piece of dry bread, he asked him how it came to pass that he, a white man, should have no meat to eat along with it. Because I'm not so rich, answered the soldier. Then I will make you a present, sir, said the negro. First pick my hand that was chopped off, clean to the bones. Next begin to devour my body till you are glutted. Then you will have both bread and meat, as best becomes you. Which piece of humour was followed by a second laugh. And thus he continued until I left him, which was about three hours after the dreadful execution. Subsequently, on proceeding to the spot, the writer discovered that after the poor wretch had lived thus more than six hours, he was knocked on the head by the commiserating sentinel, and that having been raised upon a gallows, the vultures were busy picking out the eyes of the mangled corpse, in the skull of which was clearly discernible the mark of the soldier's musket. Captain John Massey, executed for piracy. Captain Massey was the son of a gentleman of fortune, who gave him an excellent education. When young he grew weary of home, and his father having procured him a commission in the army, he served with great credit as lieutenant under the command of the Duke of Marlborough during the wars in Flanders, in the reign of Queen Anne. After this he went with his regiment to Ireland, and at length got appointed to the rank of lieutenant and engineer to the Royal African Company, and sailed in one of their ships to direct the building of a fort. The ship being ill-supplied with provisions, the sufferings of the crew were inexpressibly great. Those who lived to get on shore drank so greedily of the fresh water that they were thrown into fluxes, which destroyed them so rapidly that only Captain Massey and a very few of his people were still alive. These, being totally unable to build a fort, and seeing no prospect of relief, began to abandon themselves to despair. But at this time, a vessel happening to come near the shore, they made signals of distress, on which a boat was sent off to their assistance. They were no sooner on board that they found the vessel was a pirate, and, distressed as they had been, they too hastily engaged in their lawless plan rather than run the hazard of perishing on shore. Sailing from hence they took several prizes, and at length on the ship reaching Jamaica, Mr. Massey seized the first opportunity of deserting, and repairing to the governor he gave such information that the crew of the pirate vessel were taken into custody, convicted and hanged. Massey might have been provided for by the governor, who treated him with singular respect on account of his services to the public, but he declined his generous offers, through an anxiety to visit his native country. On his sailing for England, the Governor gave him recommendatory letters to the Lords of the Admiralty, but, astonishing as it may seem, instead of his being caressed, he was taken into custody, and committed till a session of Admiralty was held for his trial, 
when he pleaded guilty and received the sentence of death. His sentence was subsequently carried out, although it may readily be supposed that due attention was scarcely given to the case which the interests of the prisoner demanded. End of part five.